Welcome to Prism Bible, where we learn the Bible so we can live the story. God has a part for each of us to play, and to understand our purpose, we need to grasp the big, beautiful story that's unfolding in history. Join us today as we meet the second king of Israel, a man who trusts God and desires to honor him, and yet turns from God in a moment of temptation. You're listening to Prism Bible. The rise of David in the public eye begins on a battlefield. Faced with a powerful enemy and a timid army of Israel behind him, the young man walks into the battlefield with no armor, holding a sling and some stones. The enormous enemy soldier begins berating the young man before David yells out in defiance, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David had heard of the 300 men with Gideon who defeated the huge Midianite army of 135,000. David knew that the presence of God was the deciding factor in every battle. David had faith, and in this, David was driven to action. This is a good way to characterize David, a man who had faith in God and in his power. And after his great victory over Goliath, David's eventual rise to the throne involves victory after victory as leader in Israel while Saul continues his reign. David had so many victories that it became a saying among the people of Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. The people began to see David as their victor, with King Saul playing a distant second. And you can imagine how this made Saul feel a bit uneasy. Saul sees the hearts of the people turning toward David, and he doesn't like it. So for the next several years, Saul's jealousy moves him to try to kill David. Saul uses all his power to keep David from becoming king in his place. Despite the prophet Samuel telling Saul that the kingdom was being taken from him by God himself, Saul still fights against the judgment. He wants to hold on to the rule that's no longer his. Yet years later, no matter Saul's efforts to the contrary, David becomes king after Saul dies in battle against Israel's enemy. David becoming king, however, takes some time because someone else tries to take the throne instead. After Saul's death, one of his sons quickly assumes the throne over Israel, and this ascension to the throne causes war in Israel. A war with David and the tribe of Judah on one side, versus essentially every other tribe of Israel on the other. It seems unwinnable for David, except for something we've already come to learn. When God is involved, numbers don't matter. So we see this. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David was long, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. While it did take some time, David was finally able to take control of the whole nation, while simultaneously winning the hearts of all the people. David really was a great king. Even through the war, David is able to win loyalty from even his former enemies. Don't miss something about this war within Israel, though. Israel's war here, that ends in unification, plants the seeds of deeper division. The fault lines, though currently closed and patched by David, yet endure under the surface. 
The 12 tribes of Israel will not always be united, despite David's success in bringing them together under his rule. Now, after David finally unifies the tribes, he continues to battle the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. The command to drive the inhabitants out of the land was still in force, and David was obedient to God in continuing his military campaigns. As part of these campaigns, we see David and his men capture the stronghold city of Jerusalem, where David sets up the capital city of Israel, and soon he builds a great house in the city. He builds it out of cedar as one of the largest buildings in Jerusalem, solidifying the location as the place of the king and the capital of the nation. In these years, it seems that God blesses David in nearly every endeavor. He is the unstoppable king, and David himself understands this. He knows that he would be nothing without God's blessing, and he soon seeks in some way to return blessing back to God. It's upon completion of his great cedar palace that he laments the fact that God's dwelling place is still in a tent. Remember the tabernacle? The tent that was built all the way back when Moses was with the people in the wilderness? Well, David expresses a desire to build God a permanent house. David soon tells Nathan, one of the prophets at the time, of his intention to build God a house. And Nathan initially reacts positively to this. Who wouldn't react positively to someone wanting to honor God? Yet God himself speaks to Nathan that evening and says he has other plans. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David that this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house in which to dwell. For I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt until this day. But I have moved from tent to tent and dwelling to dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked any of the leaders I appointed to shepherd my people, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? I declare to you, the Lord will build a house for you. And when your days are fulfilled and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And I will never remove my steadfast love from him as I removed it from your predecessor. But I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. So Nathan relayed to David all the words of this vision. This is quite a promise from God. In fact, it's a promise wrapped into a covenant that we call the Davidic covenant. These are God's great promises to David involving three summary things. A dynasty, a throne, and an everlasting kingdom. A dynasty representing many seed or descendants that would come from David. A throne representing rule over all Israel. And an everlasting kingdom for a particular seed of David, one whose throne would be established forever. A dynasty, a throne, and an everlasting kingdom. David, by the mere fact that he wanted to honor God by building him a house, would instead be honored by God, and God would build him a house. In a marvelous play on words here, we see that while David wanted to build God a physical house or a temple, God turns it around and says he will build a house for David, meaning a lineage or an ancestry. The house that God would build for David would be a house more permanent than David could ever build for God. David, in his humility, is floored by this promise. 
It's the greatest thing that has ever happened to him. And he begins his response like this. King David went in, sat before the Lord, and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And as if this were a small thing in your eyes, O God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant and have regarded me as a man of great distinction, O Lord God. You can see David knows that he's unworthy of God's promise to him. And yet you can see how much confidence David has in God's power to accomplish his purposes. He even calls this promise a small thing to God. And David continues pouring out thanks to God, humbly beginning to look forward to everything God will do in the future. In the years following these great covenant promises from God, David's military victories continue as he goes with his armies to continue driving out the inhabitants of the land. And David can't stop winning. In fact, the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. But we all know, perhaps, how a story like this normally develops, because we've all seen a story like this in the news before. We've seen what success can breed, and we've seen what can happen in the corrupt human heart. Despite the humility of David and his confidence in the Lord, something's been simmering in his heart that looks an awful lot like pride a simmering that boils over in a moment of weakness. In the spring, at the time when kings march out to war, David sent out the whole army of Israel, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and he was told, This is Bathsheba the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Then she returned home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. David's faithful heart has rebelled against God, and it's bad. Not only does David break one of the Ten Commandments by coveting his neighbor's wife, but he breaks another by committing adultery. And by the end of the story, David launches a conspiracy to ensure that her husband is killed. First covetousness, then adultery, and finally murder. In the course of just a few pages, David has fallen. This should be a sobering lesson for us. Think back to the beginning in the garden. There it took just a few pages for things to go wrong. And here again, just a few pages... And what was going so right takes an awfully sinful turn. It can be so easy to become proud in the midst of blessing. But never forget, a fall only takes a few pages. David, despite all that God had done for him, became proud. He became lazy and became rebellious. In just a few pages, he becomes covetous, commits adultery, and conspires murder. He didn't break some of the obscure laws that God had given the nation. No, he broke some of the Big Ten, three of the Ten Commandments, in just a few pages. Soon the king is confronted by the prophet Nathan for his grave sins against God. And it's here that we really begin to see that despite his grievous sin, David still retains a heart toward God. David doesn't resist God's judgment announced through Nathan. Instead, he knows that he deserves it 
and admits to his sin. And what does David do next? He seeks the mercy and kindness of God, asking God to forgive him of his sins. In prayer to God, David says this to the God he so rebelled against. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me clean of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David, though a corrupt sinner, had a foundation that had been laid in his heart, a foundation that didn't break when failure and sin came, a foundation that knew the only possible solution to the problem of human sin is God himself. Only God can clean a spirit. Only God can make someone new from the inside out. While it can take just a few pages to fall, David knew that God's mercy can be granted and not a page, but in a single moment. God is waiting for every sinner to come to him in humble confession. And God's grace is ready to set us right with Him again. Join us next time as we see David's son Solomon reign over Israel and build the great house of God in Jerusalem, a house built by the wealth of the nations. Don't forget to download the Prism Bible app, our mobile app to help you learn the Bible. In addition to this podcast content, we have Bible readings, summaries, and quiz questions on the app to help you get the most out of every lesson. Prism Bible is a project of the Bible Literacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping you learn the Bible.